Hi, I'm Seth Gumry, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, we are talking to President Jeffrey Mearns, the 17th president of Ball State University. Starting from early in his life, President Mearns has had a desire to know the facts, to tell the complete story, and he has made it a passion in his life to help others to navigate their own story. He is well known for serving as a trial lawyer, where he prosecuted mob bosses and served as special attorney to the U.S. Attorney General. Prior to his appointment at Ball State, President Mearns served as president at Northern Kentucky University and provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at Cleveland State University. He earned his undergraduate degree from Yale University and a law degree from the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us today, President Mearns. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Seth. I wanted to start with your personal story is, is unique and, and really exciting. Very few people have had the wide range of experiences that you've had. Will you share a little bit about your early background? Sure. Well, I feel fortunate to have had a lot of good opportunities during my life and during my career. I was one of nine children, and after graduating from high school in Shaker Heights, Ohio, I attended Yale University. I was a pretty good student in high school, but uh, probably a better athlete. So I think I had the good fortune of getting into Yale because of both of those attributes. And while at Yale, I competed all four years in varsity cross country, indoor track, and outdoor track. After graduating from college, I taught high school English at a private school in Morristown, New Jersey called Del Barton School and continued to compete as well. I was working, uh, qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon and then was not able to, to actually compete in that event because I had an injury shortly before the competition, uh, but then enrolled in law school and attended and graduated from the University of Virginia Law School. So I had the good fortune to have some some good educational opportunities and uh, also took advantage of the opportunity to, to be a competitive distance runner too. And still running to this day? Well, I, Seth, I go out very early in the morning so that it's still dark out here in Muncie so that nobody can see how slow I am these days, <laughs> but I, I still exercise regularly. I think one thing that we skipped over in there is you were a federal prosecutor and, and you worked on a, a number of high profile cases, including the Oklahoma City bombing, um, a wrongful conviction that was featured in 2020 recently. How did those experiences, especially those sort of in, in public spotlight, prepare you for the steps that, that took you into higher education leadership? So after graduating from law school and clerking for a federal appellate court judge in Louisville, Kentucky, pretty shortly thereafter, I was appointed as an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of New York. That's Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island and all of Long Island. And shortly after my appointment began working in the organized crime section, worked on a significant number of high profile traditional organized crime families, um, tra traditional organized crime cases involving the Gambino family. My last appointment with the Justice Department, I was appointed by the Attorney General, Janet Reno, to assist in the prosecution, the second case in the Oklahoma City bombing case. I was one of the principal trial lawyers uh, that led to the conviction of Terry Nichols for his being a co-conspirator with Timothy McVeigh and attacking the Murrah building, the federal building in Oklahoma City. So I think working on those cases 
prepared me for the work that I do now in a couple of different ways. You know, as a trial lawyer, as a prosecutor, you first have to start by gathering the information. Um, you also, in, in those situations, are, are after you look at that information, have to make decisions. And I think as in higher education administration, I'm called upon to make decisions. You have to develop the capacity to communicate the rationale behind your decisions. You know, the constituencies in higher education are pretty well informed. So you have to have a, a strong, you have to be able to articulate the rationale for what you're doing. And you have to be willing to accept uh, the scrutiny and criticism. So I'm not sure I have a thick skin. I think it's maybe gotten thicker over the years. Uh, but so I think that was one of the things that's helped me. And, and also, you know, we all have to learn from our mistakes. And when you're a trial lawyer, you have some good days in the courtroom and some bad days. By learning from the mistakes, I've learned to continually strive to do better and to be better. So I think in all of those respects, I think that experience as a trial lawyer has helped me take on the responsibilities I have now. And, and I want to dive in on some of that. You mentioned communicating, right, and, and working with various constituencies in your audience. But moving from there, what, what led you to, to consider higher education administration? What, what brought you over to this path? And I guess, what was that driving force? Well, so I suspect if you talked to some of the folks that I worked with in the Justice Department and they asked you who was probably the least likely person to go on and be a university president, I probably would win that poll. Um, <laughs> what prompted me to do it, my, my father was in higher education. He was the first in our family to go to college. Uh, he then was in higher education for 40 years as a law professor and an administrator. My mother, who after raising nine children, uh, was in the city council in Shaker Heights, Ohio, the first elected mayor, woman to be elected mayor of Shaker Heights. So I came from a family that really prioritized education and service. And so working in higher education is really the intersection of those two, uh, of those two themes. And so that's what kind of drew me to this responsibility and have found it to be extraordinarily gratifying, challenging undoubtedly, but very gratifying as well. So going back and just talking about connecting with various audiences and communities within higher education, you mentioned it's important to know your audience. How does that skill help you connect with those various communities? And, and how do you bring everything together? You know, a large university like, like yours is, is, is really varied in the, in the types of faculty and the types of students and, and where you are in the state. How do, how do you connect and bring all those groups together? So one of the things I think I learned well as a, as a trial lawyer is always to ask myself before either a conversation or a presentation or a major you know, speech is, what do I want to achieve? And what do I think will resonate with that audience? Because to your point, you know, I'll have different objectives uh, in different conversations. I think some folks have kind of one gear and one message uh, that maybe only resonates with a small subset of the constituencies that I need to, to engage with. And so I've learned how to adapt the substance of what I'll present. I've learned how to adjust the tone. You know, some settings that I'm in are pretty formal. You know, if I'm delivering the convocation address to the, our, our faculty and staff at the beginning of the academic year, there's one tone you have to adopt in that setting. There are others that are less, you know, that are less formal, that are more intimate, a small conversation perhaps uh, with a, group of, of our benefactors or graduates. The other thing is I have to think about what's the best vehicle to communicate with that audience. 
With some, it's it's in writing. You know, we've got alumni who will read our emails. Well, I've got students, they're not reading my emails. We have to find other ways in which to communicate with students and prospective students. Now, I don't have a TikTok, but we've got people at the university that help me communicate with those different audiences. And I think that's what I learned as a trialer. You know, one, one day you might be speaking to a jury in Brooklyn that's made up of a random draw of people in Brooklyn and Queens. And the next week you might be on the 17th floor of the federal courthouse in Manhattan, uh, making an oral argument to three federal appellate court judges. So you have to be able to know your audience and know what you're trying to achieve. So you brought up current and prospective students and communication style is changing really quickly. Only look at TikTok or read text messages and maybe you know a select few emails that come through. What are some of the things that you and Ball State are doing to work on to reach out to potential students, but also current students, right, to keep them here and help them persist all the way through to graduation? Especially how are we communicating with those that more and more now are are questioning the value and and skeptical about the value of higher education? Yeah, you're exactly right. The public and prospective students are increasingly skeptical about the value of, of higher education. So first of all, I think what we know is they want to hear from their peers. Prospective student might be respectful and listen to me, but they want to hear from current students. They're skeptical of authority. Maybe all of us when we were teenagers were skeptical of authority, but this group in particular, uh, this group of students are skeptical. They're skeptical of what looks like marketing materials. They want genuine communication from their peers and they want it to be realistic. You know, they're smart too. You know, so you sometimes you see marketing materials from a college or a university that said, you know, come to our institution and you're going to change the world. Well, these folks know that that's a pretty audacious claim. What we want to say is come and get your education at Ball State and you can change your community. You can change the trajectory of your family and you can do something in your community that will make it better. That's more realistic. It's still aspirational, but it's realistic. So When we speak to prospective students, we talk about experiential learning opportunities. If you talk to to them about what you're going to learn in a lecture hall, that's not going to resonate with them. They can get all the content that they need in, in two minutes on their smartphone. So you have to talk to them not about lecture halls, but about research laboratories or simulation laboratories for our nursing students or our video and media production studios. You have to talk to them differently than maybe we talked to that that audience 10, 20 years ago. And with respect to their families, we have to do an even better job of sharing with them in tangible ways how a college education will translate into good professional employment opportunities. They want to know that there's a practical return on the investment. Yes, they understand that a college education can enrich your life make you a well-rounded person. And that's a good thing, but they want to know also what the tangible uh, benefit will be as well. What is the the role, do you think, of the university now? I'm glad you brought up that tangible connection to what's coming right after college and, and right after my degree. How do you think that the role has changed for the university in really making sure that those next steps are there and, and that students can see what they are and, and can go in and can go and meet them and take them. 
Yeah, so at Ball State, we're very proud to be a community-engaged institution. And there are a lot of colleges and universities say that, and, and it's true. But we are truly immersed in the communities that we serve, the communities here in East Central Indiana, and frankly, the communities all across the state of Indiana and all across the Midwest. We do that in our partnership with the Muncie Community Schools. We do that through our service learning opportunities. We do it through immersive learning. So we can speak to a prospective student and say, you don't have to wait until after you graduate to translate what you're learning. We're gonna show you, and you're gonna be doing it every day here while you're getting your education. You're gonna be working, for example, in a community, helping to do an urban design project, or you're gonna be working in a healthcare setting where you're gonna be learning from healthcare professionals, or you're gonna be working with Habitat for Humanity on the south side of Muncie, where we're not just restoring homes, but we're revitalizing an entire neighborhood here in Muncie. So we can demonstrate in a very clear way and have them talk to current students and share what they're doing on campus and in the community. And when I say community, I really mean communities all across East Central Indiana. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important to, to bring that experience forward, as you're saying, right? Those immersive learning experiences where it's, it's not at the end of the four years, it's during the four years and exposing students to that. How do you get more students to take part in that? How, how do you get students to really reach out and, and engage with those immersive learning experiences? Well, it's certainly it's been hard during the pandemic because that has restricted some of those external activities. It's restricted some of the co-curricular and extracurricular uh, activities on campus. And one of the challenges that we're seeing, one of the headwinds, even as we emerge from the pandemic, is if you think about a, a current college freshman, that young woman was a sophomore in high school in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. And then in her junior year, she likely spent a lot of time of her junior year studying virtually through Zoom at home and probably had a choppy senior year. So this group in particular need to be guided and encouraged and nurtured in a step-by-step -step way to get engaged on campus and in the community. So we have a long history of doing that well pre-pandemic. What we're finding now is we have to expose those students and speak even more clearly about the value of going off campus and doing things in the community. Again, we've got a long history of doing that, so we do it well, uh, but we're facing some headwinds just because of the lingering impact, adverse impact of the pandemic. Yeah, so thinking of those students in your fall 22 opening convocation remarks, you you shared the story of Annie Burns Hicks, who was a graduate of Ball State in 1958. Could you share that story with us? And, and what does that symbol mean to Ball State? And how does that connect to exactly what you're talking about with students? Yeah, so we like to talk to our students, but also I also talk to our faculty and staff and remind them of the enduring impact of what we do. And Annie Burns Hicks is a perfect example. She, as you mentioned, she graduated from, well, then was Ball State Teachers College. We didn't become a university until the mid-1960s. She had moved to Indiana, to Hammond, Indiana, which is in the Northwest area of the state. She and her family had moved from Mississippi in 1944. What I shared was what Annie Burns Hicks once said. She said, her father said, I brought you to the North for a better life. And the only thing I ask is for you to try to make the world a better place. And Annie, you know, embraced that. So when she graduated from Ball State, she applied to be a teacher in Hammond, Indiana. She actually applied to be a teacher 
at Maywood Elementary School, which was the same school she had attended, and she was rejected. And she was actually told that she was rejected because Hammond, Indiana was not yet ready to have a colored teacher in the elementary school. And she wouldn't accept that. So she filed a lawsuit in federal court. She won that lawsuit. And as a result of that uh, lawsuit, she became a teacher in Maywood Elementary School. And she taught there for 40 years. Then just this past year, within the last year, the school board renamed the school after her, the school that she attended and where she taught. She broke down the color barriers all across Hammond, Indiana. She, her fight led to the first black firefighter, the first black police officer, and she inspired so many students to become, to become teachers. So I, I often wanna tell our students, as well as our faculty and staff and our alumni and benefactors, to tell them the story of an Annie Burns Hicks, a woman who just through one education and through a lot of courage and commitment has changed the trajectory of the lives of hundreds and hundreds of other children just like her. It's a great example also, of, as we were speaking about earlier, right, of it can be a bit much when we say you can go out and change the world, but sometimes changing what's happening in your community is what helps change the world at large. And if and we all do it, that the cumulative impact will change the world. That's exactly right. So switch a little bit in thinking of, of a different type of student. I mean, you have a remarkable athletic background. You serve as the, the chair of the Mid-American Conferences Council of Presidents. You're on the NCAA Board of Directors for, for D1 student-athletes. How does that help you connect with student-athletes, but specifically the needs of student-athletes? What they're going through is, is different from, from some of our other students out there, and, and how has it helped you empower the athletic department? Well, so I can relate to their aspirations, their dreams as a student-athlete. You know, I, I remember when I was 12 years old, I told my father that I wanted to represent the United States in the Olympics in the marathon after watching Frank Shorter win the gold medal. And while I qualified for the Olympic trials, I never made the team. But so I, I pursued my dream for many years so that I can relate to their dreams. I can also relate to the sacrifices that they need to make to go through the training. I can relate to the dedication that it takes. And having competed uh, as I did at Yale, also those sacrifices don't mean compromising on your commitment to the educational experience that you're receiving when you're a student athlete. So it gives me the ability to relate to the student athletes and to relate to the coaches. And so we try to be very intentional of communicating to our athletes and to our coaches that we have three non-negotiable expectations. We want competitive excellence on the field and on the court. We want academic excellence. And we want our student athletes and our coaches to represent the university with character and integrity. We have high expectations, and I'm grateful that under the leadership of our athletic department, two years ago, we had the best all-round athletic performance in the Mid-American Conference than we had had probably in 20 years. And then just this last year, we received the award for having the highest uh, athletic program GPA. We're demonstrating uh, that you can compete at a high level. Our men's volleyball team uh, went to the final four and finished third in the country. Our women's volleyball team beat Michigan in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, a couple of years ago, we won a bowl game. We've gone to football, FBS football gold bowl games two years in a row. And yet our student athletes, that same women's volleyball team 
their team GPA last year was 3.82. So we recruit student athletes who want to excel in competition at the highest level of NCAA Division I, but also shine in the classroom. And with my own experience, I know that that's, that's possible. And that's what I try to communicate. My passion for the value, the continuing value of college sports, even when we spend, I think, too much of our time focusing on a small number of sports at a small number of institutions and whether we should pay those athletes and things like that. Those are real issues that we have to solve, but I don't want us to solve them and at the same time lose sight of the vast majority of student athletes that are competing and getting a high quality education. Across society, we tend to focus on on the smallest percentages that that have the outsized uh, coverage in the news or or wherever it is, but it's not necessarily representative of everybody else. Exactly right. And so we ha- we in the NCA we have to solve those problems. We, we have some challenges that we need to face, but we have to do that by preserving the enterprise as a whole, so that it can continue to be a very special part of American culture and and college life. Speaking of American culture, this podcast is is called Rebuilding the American Dream. What does the American Dream mean to you? Well, it's personal to me. And so if I could share, my father, both of my parents were born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. None of their four parents uh, even attended college. My father was the first in our family to graduate from college. His father was a nightclub singer. His mother was a secretary or an executive assistant. And the education that he received changed his life. As I mentioned, he committed his life to higher education. But it didn't just change his life. It changed the trajectory of our whole family. And so, you know, sometimes I wonder what my grandparents on both sides, what my grandparents would think that their grandson is now the president of one of the best public research universities in the country. I wonder what they think, but I do, but there's one thing I know. I, I know what they would expect from me. And what they would expect is that, is that I would do the work every day to make this educational opportunity available to every other deserving young woman and, and young man. That's what motivates me. That the, as I said, the American dream is very personal to me. And the work that I do is motivated, motivates me on a very personal level. And from that, having the opportunity to interact with so many young people contemplating college or just their future more generally, what is that sort of one piece of advice that you always find yourself coming back to? Well, so many of our students, more than 30% of our undergraduate students are like my father. They're first in in their family to go to college. And so whether it's prospective students or current students, I tell them it's possible. You know, some of them, all of us when we were in college probably had some doubts from time to time. So I tell them it's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. And that the impact of a college education is powerful because it can change your life in ways that you can't even fully imagine. And I know that because it happened to me as well. Well, President Mearns, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on and I hope to continue the conversation in the future. Thank you very much, Seth. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to me, Seth Gumry, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. Find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Degree Insurance. Until next time.